All right, hello everybody. Thank you very much for being here today and welcome. My name is Zeki Barak Hamid. I'm from Humanities Washington. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. If you don't know who we are for Humanities Washington, we're a private nonprofit organization that's dedicated to uh, sparking conversation and critical thinking using story as a catalyst. You can visit our website, which is humanities.org, to learn more about us. Uh, we're partnering, of course, with the great KUOW, my favorite radio station. Uh, and we're, uh, we've been doing this really all year. Uh, we've done a couple of events uh, talking about the Democratic side of things, and now we're talking about the Republican side of things. Uh, I also want to mention that for all three presidential debates, we're going to be hosting them at Naked City Brewery in Seattle. Uh, so if you want to come, and uh, depending on which side you're on, you could chew your fingernails until you have none left, um, and have a couple of drinks to make it go down a little smoother. So we really would love it if you can come and join us for that. Um, uh, so yeah, so we're very happy that you're here today, um, and we're just going to have a wonderful conversation, one that I've been looking forward to having for a long time. We have really an all-star panelist here. So I'm going to give it to my friend Ross Reynolds from KUW right now, and we'll take it away. Uh, thank you so much for being here this evening. How many of you came to our last event, the Elephant in the Room event, a little bit earlier? Some of you did. How many of you were at the rally last night? A few people were at the rally last night. Well, I don't have to tell you, 2016 is a pretty disruptive year for the Republican Party. Uh, the state chair, Susan Hutchison, says the Washington State Republican Party supports our presidential nominee, Donald Trump. Yet, Republican candidates for Senate and governor have said they will not support Donald Trump for president. When I invited Washington State's probably preeminent Republican, former Governor and Senator Dan Evans, to join us this evening, he wrote back to say, express his view that he could not come. He wrote, quote, I am frankly so distressed at this election, I don't even want to talk about it. Dan Evans doesn't even want to talk about it. So how did we get here? When we look back at 2016, are we going to think, that was interesting, that was an outlier, or are we going to look back and say that was the moment that things really changed fundamentally for the Republican Party? Joining us are panelists with a deep background in the Republican Party, and we're talking about the grand old party from Reagan to Trump. We could start, some said we should start earlier, we should start with Nixon, but arbitrarily we're starting with, with Reagan. Uh, they'll be, they may be as distressed as Dan Evans is, but fortunately they're willing to talk about it. So we appreciate that very much. Um, Joining us to discuss it are former U.S. Senator and State Attorney General Slade Gorton. Also with us, political scientist and State Representative Matt Manweller. Former GOP Party Chair Diane Tabelius. And former Republican Secretary of State Sam Reed. Sam is now the chair of a group called the Mainstream Republicans. I want to just start out by calibrating where you think we are at the moment. And I'll start with you, Sam, and we can go down the table. Some pundits believe the Republican Party is headed for a titanic loss this year, not just the presidential race, but also in Congress and in down-ballot races here in the state. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it was Speaker Tip O'Neill who said that uh, all politics is local. And uh, we sure hope that's true this year. Uh, I was very encouraged looking at most of the primary results and at some of the polling numbers that I've seen that uh, it isn't having a negative effect on, on most of our candidates here in the, the state of Washington. Uh, and frankly, that's our history, our state. The voters take pride in voting for the person, not the party. 
they take pride in being ticket splitters and such. And uh, I know I would have never been elected statewide if that weren't the case because the Democratic candidates for president and governor, uh, well, the president ones won big and the governors usually did. Uh, so given the political culture and the heritage of the state of Washington, I just don't think it's going to have a significant impact this year in our state. Diane Tabelius, you were the state party chair, so this is something that's in your wheelhouse. Uh, first of all, do you agree with the premise that it, a big titanic loss for the presidential candidate for the Republican Party, Donald Trump, will affect down-ballot candidates? Well, you make an assumption there's going to be a yes. big titanic yes. loss, and I, I don't buy that assumption. Okay. Um, I, I look at this race a little bit different. And if you look in the history of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party over 200 years, you can see that every so many years, 22, 25, 36 years, there's been an actual change in how the party looks at issues and the issues that are important to the voters. And I think uh, that this is a year that we're seeing from Reagan's year because for some of us who were just young in 1980, um, what our memory is that people said, oh, if Reagan gets elected, it's just going to be a disaster. We're going to lose everything and we're not going to win. And in fact, Slade Gordon in our own state was elected in that year with 12 Republican senators nationwide with a press and people saying it was going to be titanic losses, maybe not that word, because that's a different word for this year. Um, and the Republicans <coughs> took over the U.S. Senate, and we had many changes across the country. So um, now we're looking at 36 years later, and I think what we're going to be seeing is not titanic losses. In fact, uh, I would suggest to you that yesterday's primary showed us there will not be. Rubio and Rubio won very uh, thoroughly. Uh, Senator McCain won, um, and Senator Portman in the state of Ohio is doing hugely uh, when everyone said he was going to lose because of what was happening in the presidential races. So I think that this is a series, uh, a race in a series of changes in parties uh, across the history of the United States and across the Republican Party, and so it's not going to be a titanic loss. I can't predict that um, Donald Trump is going to win, but I don't see titanic losses across the nation. What about you, Senator Gorton? Do you feel as though a loss at the top level at the presidential race could drag down other candidates? The first major race I was ever involved in was Dan Evans' first run for, uh, for governor of the state. It was 1964. Goldwater was at the top of the, of the ticket. Goldwater, I think, got 38% of the vote in the state of Washington, and Evans got up into the, in, in the mid-50s. We are traditionally not a straight-party voting uh, state by any stretch of the imagination. So to say that there's automatically a, you know, going to be a, a big loss is almost certainly in, in, in error. Uh, it's, there's, in my view... No chance that Trump will carry the, the, the state. I think the governor's race will probably be fairly close. And uh, for the first time since 1980, we might, uh, we might possibly win it. But what we are seeing, even this week, now that the uh, effects of the Democratic Convention are over, uh, is that uh, Republican candidates all around the country uh, for the House and for the Senate uh, are doing better than is expected by the nature of your question. 
uh, that they just go down if there's a big Trump loss. Uh, most of them are smart enough to you know, cut their ties if they had any uh, you know, uh, with, uh, uh, you know, with, with Donald Trump. And I think his results will be a result of his campaign. And the fact that one thing that's really different this time is we have the two most unpopular candidates running for president of the United States literally in the 250-year history of, uh, you know, of our country. So neither of them is going to have coattails and have people say, well, I'm going to vote for a Democrat because I like uh, Hillary Clinton so much, or vice versa you know, with, with Donald Trump. Uh, what candidates in both parties are trying to do is to separate themselves uh, from their presidential candidates, and the ones who succeed in doing so best are the ones who will survive. And we're seeing that here in Washington State with the candidate for Senate and the candidate for governor. Matt Manueller, you're the political scientist here. Do you think there will be any, not coattails, but downward drag on some of these candidates, particularly the candidate for governor who waited till relatively late to dissociate himself from Donald Trump? Uh, it depends on where. Um, so uh, I would start with, you know, I draw pieces from all the things that other people have said here. First of all, Senator Gordon is absolutely uh, right in the sense that if this was Donald Trump against some really solid Democratic candidate, we could be looking at Goldwater numbers. One of the things that might mitigate that is that Hillary Clinton is an incredibly flawed candidate, and, you know, she is uh, the single most unpopular Democratic presidential nominee since they've been keeping those polling numbers. The only reason we're not talking about it is because Trump is more unpopular, right? Um, <clears throat> so uh, there's a little quirk there. So that is what's going to prevent the Goldwater-esque outcome. Now, it might be Goldwater-esque in the Electoral College because that has that statistical artifact of you win by one vote, you get all the electoral votes. But percentage-wise, I tend to agree with Diane that it's going to be a relatively close race within, you know, uh, four or five points, which is, you know, big for us. But the other thing is that when you look at the effect of Trump, it varies not only by state, but even within uh, legislative districts here in Washington. So if you go out to the 19th district, which is Pacific County, Longview, Trump is actually buoying Republican uh, chances with a guy named Jim Walsh. But if you go to Federal Way, he is harming our candidates because it's a high immigrant population in Federal Way. So you can literally travel 15 miles in any direction in Washington, and the Trump effect can be from it's pulling you down 10 points to it's boosting you up five. So to, to make these broad general statements about the effect of Donald Trump is very difficult because it happens on such a micro level. Slate Gorton, take us back to 1980 <coughs> and compare what the Republican Party was like then to what the Republican Party is like now in this presidential year? There were some of the same differences. Remember, there was a third-party candidate in uh, 1980 who got 5% of the vote. Uh, um, Reagan won substantially by about five points, but he won getting 50% of the vote uh, in the, the state himself. I was always very pleased that I got a considerably better percentage of the vote here in the state than he did. But that's just a part of, of what we've said already. People here, even more than in much of the rest of the country, do vote for individual candidates uh, on an individual basis. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, Reagan had opposition before he was, he, he was nominated. 
Now remember, he had challenged Ford four years earlier and come very close to beating him for that nomination at, at that point. I think Ronald Reagan was quite fortunate in not having won the nomination in, in, uh, in, in uh, 1976. Uh, but he had a time, remember, the, the big issue in 1980 was the misery index, you know, the combination of unemployment and inflation. Uh, and it was very high, and it was, it was dominant, uh, and Ronald Reagan promised that the world would be very different uh, should he win, and he was running against a flawed candidate. Uh, so uh, to say that there are parallels between the two, I think not, except, that, and I've come back to what Diane said earlier, his victory did change the Republican Party. It changed the people who led it here, and it changed the people who who led it nationally. And that's almost certain to be the case in the party that the presidency, uh, in the party that wins the presidency, you know, <coughs> everywhere. And of course, it has an effect on the losing party as well, uh, because there's no excuse for losing. And the people who are deemed to be in charge of it are likely to lose their positions. Sam Reed, how do you think the Trump candidacy will affect the Republican Party? <clears throat> I, I really think it depends upon how, how well Trump does within the state of Washington, and the polling right now doesn't show that he's going to be very strong. Uh, it's interesting looking historically here in the state of Washington that uh, after you do lose badly in, in, the, in, a, you know, in an election, uh, a lot of people say as they are talking about, in fact, the situation this year, that... Uh, Man, that party is going to sink. You know, uh, you know, is there going to be a future strong Republican Party in, in the state of Washington or, or nationally? Uh, but as you look over the years, when there has been there have been some bad losses, like 1964 with Goldwater. In fact, we lost many legislative seats, congressional seats. Well, what happened? Did they tuck their tails between their legs and say, "Poor us, we're not going to, we can't win here in the state of Washington"? No, it uh, it actually inspired them to kick it into gear, to change, to get better organized, and they came just screaming back in 1966, took over majority of the House representatives, won back some of those congressional seats. So I, I don't think because you have a tough year, a bad year, that that automatically means your party is going to be struggling in the immediate future. Matt, the, some of the narrative has been that the Republican Party leadership has kind of lost control of the Republican Party, and that's why Donald Trump has, has ascended to where he is. Do you agree with that? Absolutely not, and I, we were talking about this before we came out here. Uh, the party establishment has never had control of the Republican Party any more than the uh, Democratic Party has had control of itself. You know, the old famous Will Rogers line is that I don't belong to an organized party. I'm a Democrat, right? Um, we have this mythical sense that political parties a long time ago or earlier were incredibly strong and they met in back rooms and they 
pick the nominee that was going to win. And the truth of the matter is, is that that really hasn't been the case since about the 1830s, you know, when Andrew Jackson put together a King Caucus. But, I mean, if you want to jump forward a little bit, you can go to Chicago in 68. Uh, it was a disaster. This relatively unknown Senator McGovern comes along, and he's going to democratize the process. Well, democratizing the process is a nice way of saying, I'm going to take it out of the establishment's hands. And, you know, uh, no surprise, in 1972, the guy that wrote the rules in 68 wins the nomination in 72. So it does help to write the rules. Um, uh, but, you know, no party has really been able to control its nomination system since 1972. When McGovern changed uh, the Democratic Party, the Republicans immediately said, me too, because they didn't want to be seen as less small-D Democratic than the Democrats did, so they adopted all of his reforms too. However, ironically, the Democratic Party at least held on to the superdelegates. We didn't even do that, right? And so the, uh, the, the great humor of this election was that the Bernie Sanders uh, Democrats were bemoaning the existence of superdelegates, and everybody that supported one of the other 16 candidates in the Republican side were bemoaning that we didn't have superdelegates, <laughs> right? Uh, but the truth of the matter is political parties have really never had the ability to control their nominee. Well, in fact... Uh, just before we got started, you were saying you think the Democratic Party is going to face the, a stronger insurgency in four years than they face this year, an insurgency that right. might overcome what we might call the establishment Democratic Again, Party. Again, there are so many other things we would be talking about if it wasn't for Donald Trump. And if it wasn't for Donald Trump, the story of this election would have been the Democratic Party almost nominated an openly avowed socialist from Vermont. I mean, he came pretty close. But what's even scarier if you're a Democrat is that if you look at the way millennials voted, people under the age of 30, they went for Sanders 80 to 20. I mean, North Korean dictators don't get 80-20, right? <laughs> I mean, that is a pretty uniform vote. They are going to become a larger and larger demographic. So what happens in four or eight years from now when the Democratic National Party nominates someone like Shama Kassant? And you're going to have a different group of people up here going, what happened to the Democratic Party? How did the party of Scoop Jackson become the party of open socialists, right? So they're going to go through some heartache, too. Shama Sawant. Yes, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> um, there, there are reports that some uh, GOP leaders want to pull back from supporting Donald Trump. They want to devote party resources to state races. Diane Tabelius, do you think that's true? Have you heard that it is true? And if so, do you think that's what the party should be doing? I've, I've heard that. I don't think it's true, and I don't think the party should do that. They, they had a nominating process, and to the extent that the leaders of the Republican Party nationwide, the RNC, set up a process for electing um, a candidate. Uh, they controlled the process. That process might have gone a little uh, haywire this year, but nonetheless, there was a process. Um, and so that process is being honored, and I don't think there's anything that's going to change this. And Reince Priebus, as chair of the RNC, has said that publicly, privately, and in many different ways that we're, our resources are going to be voted towards electing the Republican candidate as president. But we're also, as in every uh, presidential year, devoting resources to electing uh, senators and legislators out of the House of Representatives. So uh, I, it's, it's a great line for press to say, but I just don't buy it. Slade Gorton, is that just a great line for press to say, or do you think the GOP seriously is or should be considering 
backing away from the presidential candidate. But, but to that's vote. a different question. You you asked yeah. me if they are, and yes. I would tell you, said you they, they weren't. They are not. Yes. And if you ask me, do I think that they should be, my answer would be no. They right. absolutely must not be changing. And Slade Gorton, do you agree with that, that, that both the GOP is not pulling well, back Well, I'm sort of the wrong person to ask that question. I've taken a hike. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I will not vote for, uh, for, you know, for Donald Trump. And uh, um, that doesn't mean that I have encouraged every candidate who's actually running for office to take the same position. I think that depends on circumstances, uh, but there are candidates uh, who who should do that in in certain places. That's a little bit different about asking what the party organization ought to do, but I guess I don't think about that an awful lot. I just remember in my beginning years in politics, and to a certain extent it's still true, uh, our mantra was, in a good year, the party doesn't hurt you. <laughs> <laughs> Why will you not vote for Donald Trump? I won't vote for Donald Trump because I think he is an evil man and that he, com- that he combines the, the, an immense degree of ignorance with an equal degree of arrogance. And uh, uh, while under Hillary Clinton, the country will continue to decline as it has under the eight years of Barack Obama, uh, under Donald Trump, it could, cease, it could possibly cease to exist. The country could cease to exist. He could, he could get us into a nuclear war. Sam Reed, uh, you were not on board with the Trump train. You supported John Kasich. Will you be voting for Donald Trump in November? <clears throat> uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to. Uh, I would like to. I'm a loyal Republican and uh, you know really committed to the party. But uh, your question about uh, the party and its support, uh, and we have a former chair out here in the audience with Kirby Wilbur, and we have a former chair on my left, and in fact, most of the resources of the party are dedicated to electing people uh, in the state itself. Now, you obviously are part of the presidential thing, but but Diane mentioned the Republican National Committee have their plan, and they have, and they have resources, uh, but the, the state party normally is going to focus on legislative races, congressional races within the state and encouraging people in the county courthouse races. Uh, and, and I really expect that to be the case yeah, in 2016 as well. Elections change political parties. Matt Manweller, looking, when we look back on 2016, <clears throat> will we look at it as a year that changed the Republican Party? I think it will. Um, you know, there's two things. There's one of two things that happen after a, a party takes a loss. They go to their fringe or they go to the middle. Right. And we have seen that in both parties. You know, uh, when the Democrats uh, lost in 68, they went hard to the left with McGovern. Right. However, when they lost in 88, they went hard to the middle with Bill Clinton. Right. With obviously completely different results. And Republicans have the same history of sometimes these internal fights that always happen after a loss. There's very few internal fights after a win. You all basically get together, sing Kumbaya, and say, I told you so, and it's all my fault that we won, right? Yeah, we but wonderful. when we lose, we, we yeah, get right. together and say, uh, it was all their fault, and if we people had done what I had said, uh, which I don't remember what that was, but if we had, it, we would have won, right? But we have these internal fights, and you either, the, the, the hard base wins, or the, hey, you've lost three in a row, guys, maybe we should move to the middle. And that's the fight that will take place in the heart and the soul. What makes 
the Trump candidacy different than most of these is it's not been about purity. He's random, right? I'm a Republican who has spent my life advocating for free markets and free trade, and my nominee uh, sounds like Bernie Sanders when it comes to the TPP, right, and to uh, NAFTA. And I, I, I remind people, it's like it was Republicans that pushed NAFTA through. It was George Herbert Walker Bush that signed the thing, right? Well, actually, he had uh, Clinton that signed it, but he was setting it up. So it was like, um, you know, there's just this randomness. Like, it's not that you're too far left or too far right. You've completely just chosen random issues that are not along the left-right spectrum. And so that's what will make our response different. You said you won't vote for Trump because he's random. Slade Gorton said it's because he's evil. Diane Tabelius, will you vote for Donald Trump? Yes, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. I, I think that Donald Trump is a populist. He's neither the conservative nor a liberal. He um, represents the interests of people that have not been taken account in the Republican Party. I think the polls um, are underrepresenting that vote. Um, what, what we should be asking is, why is Hillary Clinton, if she's so great um, and such a great candidate, not going up all the candidates across the country? And in fact, it's not happening. And the reality is it's not happening because Hillary is as flawed a candidate as some people have suggested up here. Trump is a flawed candidate. I don't necessarily take that position, but I've heard that. And I would say she is as flawed. In fact, her numbers on unpopularity have gone up since the convention, and her and Trump are both tied. So it is a race uh, that the public sees as two candidates who have issues. Um, and there are people, I believe, out there as evidence last night by over 10,000 people at a rally and a Tuesday night in Everett. Oh, my goodness, I can't tell you if I've ever seen that before. Coming out who are dissatisfied, unhappy, have not been involved in the Republican Party before or the Democrat Party or any party, and they are coming to express their support for a candidate that they see representing their issues, which Matt will tell you, I agree with him, don't necessarily represent what he thinks the Republican Party should represent, but Donald Trump is a populist, and he doesn't necessarily represent those views because he is a populist. Slade, you, you, just for the record, sure. I didn't say I wasn't voting for him. I'm undecided, but uh, okay. I, I, they said they weren't voting Slade, for him. Slade, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Diane is, is right, and I think each of us has said this. We have these two very unpopular candidates. Um, one of the great ironies of this election is had the Democrats nominated anyone but Hillary, they'd be 20 points ahead of, of Trump at this true. point. Had the Republicans nominated anyone but Trump, we'd be at least 15 points ahead of Hillary yeah, at, at this point. <laughs> maybe, maybe 30. <laughs> maybe Diane is right on that. But something has gone wrong with the way in which we conduct these nomination contests when both of the major and historic parties in the United States have gone, yeah, have, have gone so wrong in the way in which they have picked those candidates to run. Trump has tapped in to something which has been going on for some considerable period of time. Uh, my view is that the Democratic Party abandoned the working class 20 years ago. Uh, and it's only now coming home home to roost. And Diane's right, the people who were there in Everett, 
if they considered themselves anything 10 years ago, they were mostly Democrats. Yeah, they were. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and by the same token, I think I would be willing to make a bet that a significant majority of the billionaires in the United States are Democrats. Uh, and, and so we are in a roiling period of time and of change, and each of the parties will be different four years from now than it is today. Sam, some argue that Donald Trump is the, a, a natural progression and extension of where the Republican Party has been under eight years of President Obama. Do you think that's entirely true? Do you think that's partially true? Do you think that's a lot of hokum? <clears throat> well, I, I think that there's certain factors have been present within the Republican Party uh, in the last maybe two decades that that lead a bit to this kind of lack of civility, lack of of, bi, you know, of, of bipartisanship and such uh, that we are seeing. However, uh, watching the races in the state of Washington, legislative races, the statewide races and such, I really haven't seen that. I've seen some fine people be elected to public office who are running as Republicans who, in fact, are more civil and moderate and work on a bipartisan basis. I haven't seen it <clears throat> running through you know, our candidates. And I, who uh, was a courthouse official and as Secretary of State, worked for the courthouses a lot, can say the same for the Republicans in the county courthouses. Uh, pragmatic, practical, common sense people, they're trying to do a good job of governing. Matt, what would you say to those who say that uh, Donald Trump is not such a radical break from what the Republican Party has been doing in recent years? They, they see a through line there entirely untrue? Is there anything to that? Yeah, I think that we mistake uh, Trump as a political phenomenon. I think he's a cultural phenomenon. And uh, it's very hard to explain my perspective. But I believe that Trump is a response to an almost neo-McCarthyism of the, the use of shaming to silence people in American politics. Um, if you're against illegal immigration, we'll just silence you by calling you a racist. If you're pro-life, we will silence you by calling you anti-woman. If you oppose the minimum wage, we will silence you by saying you hate poor people. And what Donald Trump did is he came out in this almost talk show mentality and said, I'm going to say what I want, how I want. No one's going to shame me. No one's going to silence me. And anybody in America who had been shamed into silence, who had been forced to wear the scarlet A, said, I have, a, a, I feel a kinship with that man because he cannot be shamed into silence. I mean, look at this poor man who is the chef for the Seattle Seahawks. All he did was come out and say, you know what, I'm concerned about the transgender bathroom rule because I think that pedophiles might take advantage of it. He had to go out and do an apology video because he was threatened. We will crush your business. We will protest in front of your business. We will kill your restaurant. Your family will starve. So in true McCarthyistic fashion, I'm not a communist. I very apologize. Uh, you know, uh, I'm so sorry. And then they sent out the video. Donald Trump won't ever do that video. And there's something about that that is connecting with the American public. Diane Tabelius, do you think there's a through line from the appeal of Donald Trump for the position he takes, take immigration, for example, from what Republicans have been saying for the last few years? Is he such a break from what we've seen in the past well, I think um, I, I think that Matt has a really good point there about Trump doesn't apologize. And there, uh, your question started to him was: is the of what we're seeing here is the effect of eight years of Barack Obama? 
I would suggest that it is many years of being politically correct so that we have to have safe places in our colleges and we have to argue that someone who doesn't agree with you is there's something wrong with them. And usually what happens in our state, it's the effect of uh, being a Republican. In fact, I was going to, I laughed up here because I was thinking about all my friends that are telling me privately they're voting for Trump but won't say anything publicly because they're afraid what's someone going to say about their business and do they dare say anything publicly. Um, and, um, and, and that is a shame because what I think Republicans are seeing and the people who are supporting Trump are seeing is that there is an attempt to silence them, to say what they ha hold as views is wrong, um, that it's bad, um, and that they uh, should change their views. And Trump is saying, look, it, you, you have a right to these views and don't back down from them. It doesn't mean we can't talk, i.e., I go to talk to the president of Mexico today. Um, I have no problem sitting down with him. I may disagree with him on the wall, but I'm going to sit down and talk to him. That um, was very Reagan-esque, to be honest with you, what, what Reagan would have done, and it's what we should do, be doing more in our country, and that has just not been happening in, for a number of years. Slade Gorton, what are your thoughts on whether or not Donald Trump is such a break from the last six or eight years of Republican Party stance on issues like immigration? I couldn't possibly improve on Matt's analysis of, of, uh, of, of how this took place. And it is for exactly that reason uh, that Trump supporters are unaffected by his changing his views on the specific subjects he's talked about. They aren't for him so much because of, of, uh, of what he said about immigration uh, or about uh, Social Security or about defense or anything else. They're for him because he has validated their own general rules about where they are in, 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 in American society. Uh, it's, I, I, I'm frustrated by it because I think a slightly different populist who actually knew what he was for from the point of view of policy uh, and, and was a true conservative uh, could have taken over this, added, the, the, this constituency as well and have been far more popular and could have been successful in winning the presidency, which I don't think Trump has the remotest possibility of doing. But having candidates that you more closely to the true conservative banner tried and failed to win the presidency the last two elections? Uh, ironically, the Republican Party tried to improve over the nomination system that it had in 2012 when there were too many debates and the candidates have spent all their time tearing down one another. <clears throat> and this was supposed to be you know, just a limited number of debates, and we'll do it in a different fashion. And it ended up greatly favoring you know, the most populist of all of them and the one who was in the first place in, in, in the polls. Uh, Trump probably would not have won the nomination had there been only two or three candidates from the That's beginning. True. Uh, and had there been an earlier consolidation of uh, all of the people who, just like to remember, he was only in the 20s in most of the early uh, caucuses and, uh, uh, and primaries. But it turned out to be a huge advantage uh, you know, for him to be basically all alone and you're calibrating the differences between all the other candidates. 
Uh, and uh, it seemed to me that almost none of them had ever had a speech coach. Uh, and Trump, with his views, didn't need one. Uh, but uh, the great reform, I think, for 2020 is there'll be a different way of differentiating between the candidates as we go into the primary season. Uh, Diane wants to jump in here. And by the way, if you have a follow-up, please let me know, and we'll continue. Go ahead. By the same uh, reasoning, if the Democrats had had 16 candidates like the Republican Party had, Hillary Clinton would not have been the nominee. I contend it would have been Bernie Sanders. And the irony is Bernie Sanders has never claimed to be a Democrat, and yet the Democrat Party let him run as a Democrat where he is an avowed socialist. Um, And so if you had taken the whole campaign, the primary, and switched around with 16 Democrats, I mean, we'd have a Democrat panel up here trying to talk about the same issues. (laughs) And maybe we will in four years, right? (laughs) Um, I want to... David Frum in The Atlantic, an article called The Great Republican Revolt. Here's his analysis. I'm going to read a quote from it. The angriest and most pessimistic people in America are people we used to call middle Americans, middle class and middle-aged, not rich and not poor, people who were irked when asked to press one for English and who wonder how white male became an accusation rather than a description. You can measure their pessimism in polls that ask about their expectations for their lives and for those of their children. On both counts, whites without college degrees express the bleakest view. You can see the effects of their despair in the new statistics describing horrifying rates of suicide and substance abuse fatality among that same group in middle age. White middle Americans express heavy distrust of every institution in American society. And when Donald Trump came along, they were the people who told the pollsters, that's my guy. What's your reaction to that, Sam Reed? I think he's, he is correct, uh, and it is something that uh, we kind of establishment uh, Republicans missed, and uh, the establishment Democrats as well, that there is this whole group of, of middle America that, that felt betrayed by the leadership of this country. And... Uh, even though, you know, around the edges of trying to provide more educational opportunities and such, you know, that was being advanced by both parties in several, in many respects. But I, I, I think that uh, that's one service that Donald Trump has done is he has put the magnifying glass on these folks that truly, truly need help and, 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 and shown that we need to be more responsive to those needs in terms of of the people who are providing leadership in, in public policy and in government. From this is a, has a slightly different theory than you were espousing a little bit earlier, yeah. Matt. Do you think he's on track there? Well, I, I think that when you read that paragraph, he's going in two directions. And, yeah. and the first part is, is somewhat similar to what I was saying, right, is that, you know, you, you have people who spend their whole lives and they're mainstream and all of a sudden they become the enemy and they don't understand why. And, you know, the, the example I used before is, that, you know, um, you know, myself, my dad doesn't think that a 40-year-old man should go take a shower with a 13-year-old girl. But if he says that now, he's a bigot. And so he scratching his head. How is it that, uh, you know, how did I become a bigot just because I don't want uh, a 40-year-old man showering with my 13-year-old daughter, right? He, he's confused, right? That's kind of what I was saying earlier. But the second part of what Fromm is I'm saying... I'm sorry, who's proposing that? The well, 40-year-old <laughs> men sleep with... That's I, the I, law right here, by the way. Any 40-year-old 40-year-old men, men can sleep with... Can, can take showers with 13-year-old girls. Yes, okay. that is the law right here in Washington. Okay. And we had a big debate about it, and we lost, right? And anybody who spoke up and said, I don't think that's right, was called a bigot. 
right? Uh, and so we were silenced, you know, because nobody wants to be called a bigot. Uh, but the other part of Fromm's argument is he's touching on something that has changed and that there was people, there were people in Ohio, Pennsylvania, what we called the Rust Belt, that didn't feel they had to go to college. They would go to high school, they'd get a diploma, and there was a manufacturing job there for them that was open to them with a high school diploma in which they could live a middle-class lifestyle. I don't think that world exists in America anymore. The, the role of education in getting to a middle-class job is so important now that if you do the, I'm going to do a high school diploma and not go to college, there may not be a $30 an hour job waiting for you. And that's why you see Trump doing so well in Ohio, where Republicans you know, haven't done as well in, in a while. And he's doing so well in West Virginia. So I think Fromm has an economic argument and a cultural argument, and he kind of crammed them into the same paragraph. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that, Slade Gorton? I'm going to take us off on a different direction. Right. I, I agree with the remarks of my two predecessors here. Uh, but I want to point something else about, uh, out about this election that we haven't mentioned so far at all. You have asked how the four Republicans up here are going to vote. And only one of them has said unequivocally that, 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 she, will vote, uh, that she will vote for Trump. You have 50 people who have been in the State Department or have had something to do with our foreign affairs who formally said that they'll actually vote for Hillary. Yeah, before they'll, 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 they'll vote for Trump. Seventy economists and, and the like. A member, two members of the United States Senate. Uh, uh, you have a Republican Party that is deeply divided you know, by Trump between many traditionalists like me who simply cannot stomach the man and feel it's our responsibility, even though we've nominated him, to see to it that he doesn't win because he is not capable of, of handling the job. It has very little to do with, uh, with specific issues. But curiously enough, there's no parallel to us on the Democratic side. The Democrats have nominated a woman who is serially incapable of telling the truth, uh, for whom family and money seem to be the, you know, the first goal and power as a, you know, as, as a way to do it and who's never been successful in any of the policies that she's advocated when she's held office. And there is no group of Democrats that say, that's too much for us. We can't do it. We have to look for another side. Personally, I think that is a great tribute to the Republican Party uh, that can allow that can have people who say, party loyalty demands too much. And I don't see any Democrats who are saying party loyalty should de- demands too much, and they have every bit as much reason to do so as we have. But what about you? What are you doing to defeat Donald Trump? Or- well, I wrote an op-ed on the subject that appeared in the Seattle Times. Uh, I am encouraging an independent candidate who's gotten into the race much too late. Uh, and if uh, we don't have anyone else on the ballot, I'll have to vote, hold my nose and vote for Libertarian. Diane, uh, Slade has just kind of slammed your guy. I'd like you to respond to that. That, that, The question is, who are you going to vote for? And I said, I and I uh, uh, publicly said I would vote for Trump. Um, But I do think Slade's point about the Democrats having an Achilles heel, they never, ever fail to support their candidate, even when their candidate is so terribly flawed. Um, that it's hard to imagine her um, being in the White House. Um, I don't take the views that um, Senator Gordon has, and I haven't written an editorial on it, so um, 
so I will leave it at that. But um, so oh, I don't or, or, agree. What with would go that, into that editorial if you wrote it? I'm curious. I agree with the editorial writer, by the way. I know Sam and some of the other people up here have said that, but I think that's a little bit nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, you don't have to go to college nowadays to get a $30 an hour job, and I frankly think that that. Um, mantra that's being pushed out is being pushed by the ivory towers of Seattle, the um, educated class who thinks everyone's got to have a college education. But there are many jobs that are available that require tech schools and don't require a four-year school that should be, we should be utilizing those resources to put people in better jobs. The problem is those kind of jobs are not necessarily there for the people who are voting for Trump and people who are saying enough is enough. No one is representing us. And I think that, as I said before, I don't think the polls are accurately reflecting that vote. Um, and I think that the, the, the election is going to be far closer than we think. Donald Trump says he'll win Washington State. <laughs> well, I would have to say that uh, that would be a silly statement by him at this point. Uh, even I, and, and I see Mr. Wilbur sitting in the audience, would probably have to agree with me as the former chair that that's going to be a very difficult but. <laughs> but. Um, uh, weirder things have happened, or stranger things have happened. I think in this state we're going to see some great Republican candidates elected statewide that we haven't seen before. Despite everyone saying Donald Trump is bringing out the can, that's not going to happen. I think um, we're going to see great candidates elected, uh, continue to be elected in the state Senate um, and in the House of Representatives where Matt uh, serves. And uh, so I, don't, I think that we're going to be seeing that. But, but Donald Trump winning this race, I think, would be a little difficult since we haven't run this state since 1980. And just for the record, I actually agree with Diane exactly about the ivory tower and the vocational yeah. education so stuff. You know, I, I agree that we, we make the mistake of telling everybody they have to go to college. But you do have to get some technical education. Yeah, and, you know, back in that. the 60s, you, could, you had a plant job waiting for you. It was maybe your dad's job. And I think they're missing that. And that might be some of their frustration. So I, I should clarify what I meant to say because I agree. Well, with 90% I, of what I she just said. think the blue-collar Democrat is disappearing. It is just no, it's not there for the Democratic Party. In fact, right. the party which cared about that viewpoint and those economic levels is, mm-hmm. is, doesn't exist, the Democratic Party. It is not. Right. Uh, uh, and, and the Republican Party has embraced that and said, what do we do to help you? And so forget who is the candidates running for office. Look at what the Republican Party is doing nationwide and the views that they are taking representing those people, and you will understand they are the party of the future. And the scapegoat has been free trade, right? So yes. that's And both parties have scapegoated free trade for that, and it has nothing to do with it. It's the last day of August. Let's jump to the day after the election and imagine three scenarios. One, we're all wrong about Donald Trump again, and he wins. Two... <laughs> He does much better than we think he's going to do right now and is nearly defeated. Three, it's a total fiasco and he loses in a landslide. In each of those different scenarios, what happens to the Republican Party, Sam Reed? The Republican Party is, is, is not the party of the President of the United States. There are 5,000 state and federal Republican elected officials. 
There are around 40,000 Republicans who were elected at the local level around the country. And, and I, I think whether he wins, barely loses, or loses big, that it's not going to change the viewpoint that people have of their local elected officials. And, and, uh, and I think that, that no matter what happens, we in the state of Washington have to focus on what we can do to be successful here, but also what is good public policy in the state of Washington that's going to advance Washington as we look to the future in terms of prosperity, in terms of our education system, higher education and all. That's going to be much more important than how, how Donald Trump fared nationally. You don't think a President Trump would influence the future of the Republican Party? Uh, it certainly influence the direction of the Republican Party nationally and the Republican National Committee and all, very much so. But uh, what I'm saying is I think in the, uh, here in the state of Washington, we're going to have to keep our, our eyes on, on what works for us here in this state. Matt, what do you think happens to the Republican Party under those three scenarios? Just to be clear, under all three of those scenarios, I'm going to be hung over. Um, But barring that, and I can see through uh, my blurred vision and read the newspaper, um, you know, a a Trump victory, I think uh, people will say he's Reagan all over again. I mean, we do forget that Reagan was highly unpopular until about two weeks before the election. Uh, To this day, I remember my mother saying, I'm not voting for either of those two idiots. I'm going to vote for John B. Anderson, right? And then she voted for Reagan. And it was a landslide, but that landslide broke in the last, you know, 10 days. I mean, Carter thought he was in it for like, until about 10 days. And we'll say, okay, he is the next Reagan, right? You know, and, and let's uh, go look at the Supreme Court because we've got four of them that are over the age of 75. If he just barely loses, I think that's the biggest dilemma, right? Uh, Paul Ryan will go, whew, dodge that bullet. Mitch McConnell will go, whew, dodge that bullet. Uh, our party will go, whew, we didn't get shellacked like 2006, 2008. But the dilemma will be, okay, so who owns the party, right? He lost, but he didn't lose by that much. And, of course, there will be other candidates who will say, hey, the way to win the party nomination is to mimic what Donald Trump did, right? But there will others will be say, but he lost, right? So I think that's actually in some cases the worst scenario <laughs> is a close election, right? I either hope he wins or he gets blown out because that will be definitive in who takes control of the Republican Party. But if it's close, you will watch a four-year civil war. Slade Gorton, what do you think happens under those three scenarios? I agree with Matt, but I want to put up one other thing. If he loses uh, um, very closely, he will claim fraud, that he really won. And and, and that'll make things far worse. He's already setting himself up uh, to say that he's going to be cheated out of this this election. And if this is a very close election, (coughs) in a sense it won't be resolved because he won't concede. He'll claim that he was really elected and the like, and it will be extraordinarily bad for the country. So Matt is right in saying, however it comes out, it ought to come out decisively, uh, you know, one way or another. Uh, I can hardly answer the first part of your question. I don't think he has any chance of winning, and so I haven't thought a whole lot about what it would do to the party under those circumstances. If if he loses decisively in a way that doesn't allow for saying that uh, he was he he was jobbed out of it, uh, uh, the party. Part of the party will just say, 
wow, are we looking forward to 2018 when we just sweep races around the country in every respect whatsoever because she'll be so bad a, a, bad, bad a president. Uh, and, there will be, and, and there'll be a contest within the party as to who runs it, who gets picked for jobs like, uh, like Diane has right now. But say, for here in this state, you forget, and Diane didn't even tell us, that through our caucuses, it was Cruz who won, yep. who, who put together the organization in the, in, in the, in the state that, that elected all of the delegates. There is, within the Republican Party itself, there are very few people whose first choice was Trump. Very few. Uh, they were for other conservative members. And so I don't see in Washington state, and I suspect this is true in a number of other states as well, that there'll be an organized Trump group who says, well, we were the nominee this time. Uh, it takes twice, so you know, we'll do it again. We'll take over the party. I don't, I don't, see, I don't see that happening at all. It, it is hard to imagine Trump winning right now knowing what we know. But it was hard to imagine Trump winning the nomination in the months bef- that led up to that. So if he does win narrowly, do you think, as Matt mentioned, Trump becomes Reagan, becomes like the hallmark of the Republican Party that sets the tone for the Republican Party for years to come? Only if he had a real program and saw the statute that the program <laughs> passed. Reagan knew what he was going to do when he was president. Uh, Trump doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> Diane, you were shaking your head yes when Matt was saying Trump becomes Reagan if he wins. I love being on panels with Slade. He he, he always uh, never fails to speak his mind. (laughs) I think if if Trump wins overwhelmingly, it's going to be very similar to the effect that we had with Reagan. And uh, after Reagan was elected, there were Democrats who changed parties. There was a different view in the Republican Party of how to look at issues. There were many Republicans who were resistant to Reagan being the nominee, and they were drug along. Uh, But when he was elected, they decided they needed to jump on that bandwagon. And so I think if that were to happen, I think you will see that happen as well. If he loses by a lot, um, then it's no doubt that the elected officials will, will feel, okay, good, I'm okay. But the question for the party regulars or the apparatus of the Republican Party, the Republican National Committee, the Washington State Republican Party, they're going to have to figure out a way to pull in those disaffected voters who voted for for Trump and to bring them into the party and show them that the party apparatus understands their concerns and their needs and make them part of the Republican Party on more than just a four-year basis. Um, If if, um, uh, Trump wins by just barely a little, um, I have no idea what's going to happen. I think, you know, we'll we'll just have to see uh, what what it means across the country. I mean, there's some states that will be more affected than other states. Uh, I suspect not here in this state. But I think that would be the question. So... I have no idea. If he loses by a little or wins by a little, I mean, I, I just don't know what effect it would be. I'm going to go to your questions in just a moment, but a final question I have for the senior statesman on the panel. In light of the Brexit vote, which some call the British equivalent of the Donald Trump campaign, former British Prime Minister Tony Blair recently said in an interview, it's a very open question whether the type of politics that I represent has had its day or not. 
Uh, Slade Gorton and Sam Reed, uh, has the type of politics that you've represented in your careers had its day? Slade? Well, Tony Blair certainly has. And, and, and he had had his day whether breakfast won or lost. <laughs> I, I don't buy the parallel. I think the Brits, the, the Brits voted right uh, on, uh, you know, on, on that one. And the answer, but the basic answer to your question is no. Uh, the mainstream Republicans that uh, uh, <coughs> our friend, the former Secretary of State here, represents will probably, if anything, be stronger. Uh, after after the election is over, uh, and uh, and its candidates, if, if we win, maintain control of uh, half of the legislature and win and win the other half, uh, if we win several statewide uh, seats, these people will be toward toward the moderate. Most of them will be toward the moderate end of the Republican Party. Sam Reed, my answer is no as well. Uh, we see this happen, the pendulum swings. We see times when people uh, deeply are upset with the direction of their government. And uh, in this state, it was manifest in Dixie Lee Ray being elected governor, for example. Why? Because I'm not a politician, so that's good, so elect me. Well, when we elected her, we found out what not being a politician meant. She didn't know how to deal with public policy, didn't know how to deal with the legislature, didn't know how to deal with it. News media was a disaster. So you need competent leadership, people who have experience, people who bring knowledge to uh, the job and know how to work with people on both sides of the aisle and know how to build support for themselves. And that is the, the kind of person that uh, was being referred to there as uh, a person who is part of, quote, the establishment. And I, I think we are needed in terms of being able to govern. It's time for your questions. Zeki has a microphone here, and we really want to hear you, and we'll want to hear you on the TVW program that comes from this. So if Zeki can get you, he will. Otherwise, if you could go to him, that would be great. We've great, got- thanks. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to ask the first question Excuse really quick. <laughs> uh, and then I'll, I'll come to you right here, and then to you, sir. And then if you have a question, raise your hand. I'll come to you or meet me halfway. So my really question, and I really mean this in a very sincere way. Um, so... Uh, I'm an immigrant, I'm an Arab, and I come from a Muslim background, and my politics have tended to lean left ever since I became a citizen in 2001. What is there for me in the Republican Party? Well, uh, the same thing that's been there for every immigrant that's come here, opportunity, right? Uh, The Republican Party believes in free markets, free trade, free people, and that you rise or fall on your own merits, right? And in talking to you before we got on here, you came over here. You said you had a minimum wage job. You didn't like it. You got into some community college in New York. Then you worked your way into the SUNY system. Then you got a master's degree, and now you're doing what you love. That is the spirit, the entrepreneurial Horatio Alger spirit that the Republican Party has always spoke to. And if you wanted to come here and be identified based on your, your race or the demographic box that you check, then the Democratic Party is for you. Right. But the Republican Party has and will always offer this. I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your last name is. Earn it. Work for it. And it's yours. What caused you to come here in the first place? Yes. Uh, And I I would I would answer that uh, uh, in working with immigrants in the state of Washington, I did for 12 years. 
is they tend to be more entrepreneurial, which fits the Republican Party. They tend to be family values oriented, where family is the most important thing, which is what the Republican Party is all about. They like the idea of, of there being a, an open market and a free market, which is what, what the Republican Party is all about. And, uh, and, and so we are kind of the natural party in many ways of refugees, and it's a shame that it's kind of got turned around a bit, and particularly with the, the Trump candidacy, but we've seen that happening now over recent years. But historically, that hasn't necessarily been the case. Thank you very much. Question. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, my question is, uh, how do you think the effects of redistricting since the last presidential election will affect the local and state elections this year? I, you talk about redistricting in 2010 statewide? I think Slade is our expert. Yeah. Slade was you on that, that panel. I was one of the four people who drew the lines. I suppose I better take that. Washington State, I believe, has the best redistricting system of the 50 states in, in the United States because its genius is that it requires both parties to agree. Uh, most states still do it through the legislature in which it is a brutal, partisan, and nasty fight. And I can tell you that, too, because I did it for the Republicans you know, before we had a, a, a commission here. But most of the states that have commissions have an odd number of members. There'll be, a, say, two or three Republicans and two or three Democrats. They elect the chairman, and the way I put it is one party always picks wrong. <laughs> the chairman sides with one side or another, and you still can have unfair redistricting. In our case, we have to talk to one another. There are just two Republicans and two Democrats on it. And the Democrat I worked with most closely remains a personal friend, even though you know, we fought for an entire year over exactly where lines would, uh, you know, w would go. Uh, I think that redistricting as a factor in, in, uh, in gerrymandering and in one party is, is vastly overstated. Uh, the people of America are segregating themselves in many respects by party. Uh, and uh, uh, honestly, in working on the city of Seattle for legislative districts, I didn't care where the lines went. I was perfectly happy to have my Democratic <laughs> counterpart draw them because I couldn't, in the best day I ever had in my life, draw a legislative district in Seattle that was even competitive. Uh, so can I... Can I and, 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 uh, and the same thing holds true, in, to a slightly lesser extent, in many eastern Washington districts uh, on the other side of it. But our goal was to have enough districts that were closely divided so that either party could win a majority in the legislature when they had the best candidates and had the issues with them. And the same thing was true with the way that we drew congressional districts. So your question was what will the redistricting, does redistricting have on this campaign? We've already seen the effects of redistricting in 2012 and 2014. First of all, redistricting has no effect on statewide races because that doesn't matter. Everyone's elected statewide. The congressional races, uh, the one district that might have been considered competitive was the first. 
um, the first race we had. It turned out it wasn't uh, that very competitive based upon a candidate. And it became a Democrat, and it hasn't changed since, and I don't see it changing for the future as long as Del Benny is our elected official there in the first. And so I think this year in 2016, redistricting for congressional has no effect. And for statewide races, um, I don't think it has effect either because we've seen what happened in 2012 and 2014. That having been said, we are seeing competitive races, as Matt has told you already, in districts that might have been traditionally Republican or traditionally Democrat that might be changing this year. I see that as more not a redistricting issue. I see that more as being a candidate-specific issue. The candidate that is running in that district is more accurately um, of representing the voters of that state. So you do the best you can in redistricting. Um, you try to draw them, if I can, to take Slate. I've, I've heard Slate talk about this many times, and I think I've come to accept his views on it. You, you take the redistricting to divide the voters as best you can. It's an imperfect process, and in this state, um, it was made more perfect because the committee that divided the districts was split between Republicans and Democrats. So some give and some take. It's not perfect, but it, it ended up being a pretty good process, albeit I didn't like the first district results, congressional district <laughs> other, results. Other questions? Yes. I, we got a question right here. Go ahead, sir. Thank you. Uh, thanks very much for taking my question, and thanks, Mr. Uh, Ross, for making this possible. Um, in 2005, Kenneth Melman was the chair of the Republican National Committee, and he publicly apologized for the role of the RNC under Nixon and Reagan designing and implementing the Southern strategy to build a winning margin by playing on white people's racial fears and insecurities. My question is, what's inconsistent about the racial nature of the Trump message and the Southern strategy? Well, I guess I would uh, I would probably take issue with the premise of the question, um, but uh, it kind of goes back to this uh, kind of theme I've, I've pressed upon is that, you know, there are lots of people who live in Southern California and Arizona and Texas and border states who have legitimate concerns about illegal immigration. Uh, they uh, impose considerable costs on schools, uh, considerable costs on social services, uh, considerable costs in terms of police protection, and they want the right to say, this affects my community. And in some ways, they have been silenced, because if you say, this influx affects my community, and it does, if you live down there, I live down there, then you get called a racist, which is kind of what you just did, right? You said, hey, because Trump is concerned about illegal immigration and Republicans are supporting Trump, then de facto it must be that all Republicans are racist, right? And uh, I disagree with that. I think that they have legitimate concerns, and if we could get to a point where we could actually have an honest dialogue about illegal immigration without the fear of being called a racist, then you'd have more legitimate uh, public policy solutions, but you can't do it, right? And again, you know, uh, Donald Trump has a legitimate point when he talks about Syrian immigrants, right? Uh, there were people killed in San Bernardino, right? And they were killed by 
immigrants. There were people killed in Orlando. Those aren't mythical deaths, right? And what's going on in Germany and Scandinavia, those are real women being raped and sexually assaulted, and it's being done by Syrian immigrants. Does that mean that you should paint all of them that way? Of course not, but you should at least be allowed to have a discussion about it without being sidelined by saying, well, if you talk about it, you're a racist and you're a racist party. Next question. I don't, yes, I don't, uh, Sorry, go ahead, sir. Uh, I don't allow someone else to apologize for me, and uh, so I disagree totally with the premise of the question. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I, do, I, I, do, I, I do not think uh, that the Republican Party is a racist party. I think that uh, the candidate for president has made some comments that can be, uh, can be interpreted that way. Uh, it's one of the reasons I disagree with him and, 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 and won't support him. Uh, but uh, uh, again, to go back to the previous question on redistricting, uh, one of the demands of the Democratic Party uh, was a majority-minority district. Uh, they got one in the, in the legislature. There is a district in eastern Washington uh, that is majority Hispanic. It became 5% more Republican than it was before that was run that way. The Republican Party uh, is the party of Lincoln. The Republican Party is the party that when the Civil Rights Act was passed in 65, had more Republicans voting for it than Democrats. Uh, the Republican Party is leadership in the state of Washington is what but opened up to Vietnamese refugees when they were being kicked out of California by Governor Brown. And, uh, and, and we have a long, distinguished history of, of standing up and fighting for equal opportunity that, uh, that Matt was mentioning before. And, and that is not based upon race. It's based upon the right of people to participate in our system and to succeed in our system and to have the same opportunities as everybody else. And I, I agree with Slade's point about our presidential candidate. That's unfortunate. But I, I think overall what you will find with those of us who serve in public office as Republicans, uh, you're going to find that we have, an impe- you know, many of us have impeccable records in terms of, of, of our dealings with, with these particular issues. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, I attended the Snohomish County Republican Convention this year, and I watched the Ted Cruz supporters steamroll that event. And I followed the news from many of the other state uh, county conventions where the same thing happened. Uh, And then the Cruz team steamrolled the state convention. And when the team, when the delegation went to the national convention, they went out of their way to have their photo taken with Ted Cruz. But Donald Trump won the primary in Washington State by an overwhelming majority. A huge number of people voted for him. Is there a fundamental break between the grassroots voter in Washington State and the people who are running the Republican Party in Washington State? Well, uh, the delegates uh, were elected by Cruz, but they were pledged to vote on the one ballot there uh, for Trump, and and they ended up doing so. Party organizations are created that way, you know, through conventions and the like. And when one group uh, is more willing to show up than its opponents on the other side, uh, the, uh, the, the, the results are absolutely inevitable. And, uh, you know, the, 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 I was not for Cruz much more than I was for, uh, uh, for Trump. Uh, but they did it in the right way, and they got the results that they deserved. 
uh, in it. Um, so and 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 our primary wasn't meaningful anyway because all of the other candidates had withdrawn from that time. I think that uh, Trump probably would have won had there still been two vigorous other candidates in it, but he might not have even gotten to 50%. So to use the primary here after the race was over uh, as an indication of uh, general public uh, views, I think is flawed. So your question was really specific to our state. And so what, what Senator Gordon has said is, the Cruz people out-organized most of the campaigns in the state. Good for them. That's the, what happens. So did Bernie Sanders. He won virtually every delegate out of the state, um, and he won the primary. But that it, it and so his campaign uh, didn't necessarily win at the national convention in our state. Cruz out-organized, um, and there were very few Trump people on the ground. Uh, working to organize in the party structure in the caucus system. But because Trump won the primary, everybody who came from this state to the national convention, whether they were elected as a Cruz delegate or there were some Trump delegates, they were committed to vote for Trump. And there's nothing unusual about that process. It happens every four years in both parties and um, it's just part of the, the way the process of determining delegates from going from your precincts up to your districts and then to the county convention, the state convention, the national convention. And um, I've done it more times than I can even think about it. I started when I was 10. Um, and so it's just normal. There's nothing unusual about that process. As Secretary of State, I championed the presidential primary over party caucuses. I think the caucuses, are, you know, they tend to get packed by zealots and such, and they have a very small turnout, like maybe 7% of the people of the state of Washington, uh, while the presidential primaries have averaged around 42%. And I do think that is the best way to, to determine who you're going to nominate for president. Now, what happened here in our state was that... Uh, because the Democratic legislature, they were unwilling to move the primary that Secretary of State Kim Wyman was proposing to a time when it would have been meaningful. And I think that is extremely important. That really needs to be done in 2020 is to have our primary up you know, further in the calendar where, where we're going to really make a difference. Uh, and I think we can, and I think we will. I have a question right here. Yes, sir. First of all, thank you guys for coming out and um, for hosting, and thank you guys for um, coming out and hosting. This has been very, very, very good. So I'll, let me preface by saying I'm a, a staunch centrist, a vehement centrist, um, <laughs> just to, so you know, understand where I'm coming from. Um, you guys have uh, mentioned a militant moderate. Is that what you're? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but you guys have mentioned that uh, if the race is close, and I agree, it will probably be um, closer uh, than a lot of the polls are showing. If it is close and it continues the GOP identity crisis, um, what's next? Uh, I, given the given the um, just shift in demographics as the millennials get older and tend to start voting more um, with immigration, how does the Republican Party survive without almost a jump start? I, I, most people, I, I most people, 
a lot of people that, that, I, uh, that I speak with that are kind of my age, they tend to be maybe a little bit more fiscally conservative, but more socially liberal. They'd like to see a little bit less intervention. There's not really a party for them given the current candidate, right? There's no, there's no really place for them to go uh, that they feel outside of maybe like a Johnson, right? But I, I just don't, I don't know how the Republican Party comes back from a Trump. The jumpstart for every party is always the other party. Okay, so what's going to jumpstart the Republican Party is something dumb that Hillary Clinton does. Okay, Um, you know, we talk about the Republican Party in some type of crisis. Let me be clear. The Republican Party has more seats in Congress than they have since Calvin Coolidge. They own more governors than they have ever had. They picked up 900 state legislators in the last eight years. Do you think that's because of the brilliance of the Republican establishment, right? We have picked up all these governors, all these congressional seats, and all of these legislative seats by juxtaposing ourselves with the things that Barack Obama is doing, right? So let me tell you, the person that I feel most sorry for is whoever wins, okay? (laughs) Because they are going to adopt a collapsing, cascading Obamacare. What's Hillary going to do? She's going to go back to single-payer program, right? What is she going to do in Syria? Something wrong, okay? And then will lie to us about it. But either way, I go back to what Senator Gordon said. Uh, the person that is in the catbird seat is the person who loses in 2016 because they are going to wallop the other party in 2018. The catalyst for every political party is the stupidity of the other party. <clears throat> So I, I just I, I want to disagree with your premise that the Republican Party is in crisis. Um, I don't necessarily buy that. I, I've heard that in other years on elections. I've heard that about other candidates. Um, look at the George McGovern and the huge defeat and uh, when he ran against Nixon. Um, the parties come back, and so there'll be changes. And I think uh, the Republican Party has to adapt to, to its future electorate, and it will, um, and it, it will represent your interests because, um, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, you know, you're a Republican voter here in a <laughs> few more years, um, and you will see the differences. So it's not a party in crisis any more than it's, there's ever been times a party, and people talk about that all the time. I just... Yeah. I just ne- don't necessarily buy that. My, my, reaction likely, your, my, my reaction to your question is is that uh, all the studies of millennials show that they are not associated with a particular political party. In fact, strident partisan politics really turns them off. And uh, so I think they're up for grabs. And what Matt said, I think, way back one of the first questions was, if a party loses, what do they do? Well, often they move to the middle, and I think that's exactly what we would see happening uh, after this election. And you're right. I think the party needs to emphasize fiscal conservatism, some of the things that are fundamental to the party in terms of local control and such, but also be more moderate in terms of social and environmental issues. Okay. And, uh, I th- and I expect that would be what would happen, and the millennials would be re- responsive to that. Uh, the real crisis for the Republican Party would be to have Trump win. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, from a party point of view, because Matt's entirely right if, if Hillary wins. She'll be the issue. What goes on that will be the issue and 2018 will be a great Republican year. And we won't be talking about the same subjects that we're talking about now. But if Trump wins, 
it will entirely depend on what he actually does. And I think of all of the candidates we've had in either party for many years, we know less about what he would actually do. You know, he's changed his mind, he's changed his, <laughs> his talk at least, on a significant number of issues already. Could he be a Reagan? I suppose in theory he could be. He could make all right decisions. And if he made decisions the way Reagan did in the early 1980s, uh, we'd win more seats in, uh, in, in, in 2018. Uh, <clears throat> if he continues to be an unguided missile, the party will have a very difficult time responding uh, to that. But uh, parties are reactive. And uh, the party that has the president has of necessity got to support the president, at least for a while. The party that doesn't have the presidency is much freer to set its own course and to criticize. We have a question right here. Yes, ma'am. Thanks. So um, in this election year, I've heard a lot of lifetime Republicans say that they will not vote for Donald Trump. So my question is for the two panelists who may or will vote for him. Um, what will he need to say or do between now and November to lose your support? I so thought you were going to put that question in the other way. <laughs> what does he have to say well, to win my support? Uh, what does he have to say to lose my support beyond what he's already said? What are you looking for? <laughs> um, I, I think I am going to flip the question around. I am undecided. You know, I, I have told people that I'm intrigued by you know, Gary Johnson, that I want to see him get 15%, and I want to see him on the debate stage, and I'll listen to him. But if he can't even get 15%, then it's a waste of time. But I guess for me, uh, I'm a courts guy. I teach constitutional law. I'm petrified about the court. There, are, there is a vacancy in three justices over the age of 75, and the idea, and I've told this to my students, I said, whoever wins the presidency gets a 20-year term, right, uh, because they will fill four vacancies on the Supreme Court, and their term will last 20 years after their death, uh, and that, that horrifies me to think that Hillary Clinton will appoint four Supreme Court justices to the United States and uh, undo all the progress of the Roberts Court. So what would get me to vote for Trump would be a very clear articulation that he would go and appoint justices like Roberts and Alito and Thomas and Scalia. I cheated. I switched your question. Yours is, your, your, uh, yours is a better question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't think of what would change my mind at this point, to be perfectly <laughs> adequate with you. But I will say, with respect to the Supreme Court, a lot of that depends on the control of the Senate. Yes. If the Senate stays Republican, yeah. there can be a very real limitation even on Hillary Clinton's nominations for the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I were still there, I'd be of the, you know, <clears throat> the, the Constitution says... The president shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate appoint. My view was if my advice wasn't sought, there was no obligation to consent whatsoever. And uh, the, the position of the Republican Party and the Senate should be you won't change the balance on the court. Uh, for every liberal you appoint, you'll appoint someone whom we agree is an appropriate person. So, uh, yeah, I, I think the danger of that for, uh, you know, like some of the liberals are at the present time, uh, you know, new Supreme Court justices is overstated. Great. We have a question right here. Yes, sir. I'm 
um, I'm Arslan Bukhari. I'm an American Muslim. Uh, I'm c- come from a military family. Uh, my uncles served in, um, in the army many years ago. My mom was a, U- a Navy veteran. Uh, and today, uh, many Americans also heard about uh, Khizr Khan's son, who also served. And today, there's about 10 to 20,000 American Muslims serving today in our nation's armed forces. And one in 18 medical doctors, about 50,000 total medical doctors are American Muslims. Um, Matt mentioned a point about the promise of America for immigrants who come to the U.S. Um, what will it take, or who will do it? Um, I, my personal view is that that story should be told every day in the, in the paper on the cover page and every month on the cover of every magazine. But who will talk about those stories, those, those 10 to 20,000 American Muslims serving in our nation's armed forces and those 50,000 medical doctors saving lives every day uh, to celebrate, as you mentioned, uh, the, American, the promise of America, the, the ability for anyone to achieve what they want to achieve and to be able to then overcome their chal- those challenges and then to then give back to the country? Who will tell those stories, and um, how often should they be told? I can't think of anyone better than you to do yeah, exactly say, that. Yeah, <laughs> you. Um, but, you know, uh, it's interesting in that um, part of American uh, politics has always been the metaphor of the city on the hill uh, and uh, the, uh, the Horatio Alger story. And what was surprising this year is that of the 17 candidates, there was only one who spoke to what you talked about, and that was Marco Rubio. He hit on it at every debate. He was the traditional Reagan-esque figure that we are the city on the hill, we are the opening arms uh, to immigrants from around the world. Here, you can be anybody no matter where you start. His parents, right, obviously came from Cuba. He felt it personally. And I thought that was the strength of his campaign. Uh, if he had learned to speak better, as Senator Gordon said, and had been more, uh, less worried about his talking notes, I think he would have been the guy that told that story. We've got to have well, time for uh, one more question after this. Go, go ahead. That's okay. Yeah. Yes, sir, go ahead. Yeah, actually, um, basically I had a similar question. I'm an um, American Muslim, proud to be serving in the U- U.S. military for over 23 years, and my main concern was, you know, what would be a message to the uh, Muslims who are serving in the military like me? Yeah, and I think most candidates ought to celebrate, just like they should celebrate our military in general. Um, And I applaud you, frankly, because uh, it is your services that enables us to have this debate and to disagree, and for that I'm internally grateful. So I think that those stories should be told. I would point out to you that Donald Trump has a very large contingent of people who are Muslims who are supporting them. And if if you want some names afterwards, I'd give you um, members around this community who are very active in his campaign. But I'm sure Hillary has those as well. So um, you could look to both campaigns for that kind of, for those issues. This will be the last question. This is the last question. Yes, sir, go ahead. I'd like to know your thoughts on the Constitutional Convention movement. You really don't want my answer, do you? I don't think any Constitutional Convention can be limited as to what it does. And uh, so I do not like the idea at all. I I am absolutely, the way they have phrased it, um, I don't like it. I agree that it has to, you can't limit the idea, and they're trying to limit the idea. So I think it's a frivolous movement. Um, it's going to go nowhere. I, uh, sup- I want them to be get very close. Uh, the, tr- the history of these constitutional movements under the Article 5 processes, which you're talking about, is they are most effective when they get to write about 33 states. Uh, and when they get to about 33 of the you know, 38 states that they need, 
Congress freaks out, okay? And then they give them what they want without getting the convention. So the last time this happened was with the balanced budget, and they got to about 36 states, and then all of a sudden Congress said, Graham Hollings Rudman Act, and we're going to balance the budget, and blah, 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 <laughs> and they made it all go away, right? Now, they didn't, right? And then we might learn a lesson from that. But there is something to be said by coming really close but not quite getting there. One of the geniuses of the United States Constitution is that they made it very difficult to amend <laughs> the U.S. Constitution, unlike the states, and, uh, and, and has given us a stability in terms of our document that controls our nation. And, uh, and I, I think that if there's going to be an amendment, it needs to go through the process of, of both the House and the Senate and then three-quarters of the states. Thanks very much for your attention and your great questions, and let's give a hand to our panelists this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you.